Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. I, I could take an hour reading my next guest's resume, but I'm not, because uh, <laughs> uh, he has very interesting things to say. Uh, my guest was born in Missouri. He attended Duke University. He's been awarded a Truman and a Rhodes Scholarship to attend Oxford. He had a gold medal in a, na- a national boxing championship. Uh, he's done humanitarian work around uh, Rwanda, Albania, Mexico, India, Croatia, Bolivia, and Cambodia. Uh, in 2001, he joined the Navy SEALs and has been sent to, to four different places in the world. He's been awarded the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star. He's done a book of photography called Strength and Compassion. He's a, a sub-three-hour marathon runner and uh, the winner of the Shamrock Marathon at Camp Fallujah in Iraq. Uh, he won Oxford Boxing Blues and Gold Medals in a boxing championship. This guy's in good shape. I shook his hand earlier. He was also named a White House Fellow, and uh, he is uh, founded with his uh, Combat Pay, an organization called The Mission Continues, a nonprofit organization to empower wounded and disabled veterans to begin new lives as civic leaders here at home, and he's been acknowledged by many awards for this work. He has a new book out that tells part of his story. It's called The Heart and the Fist, The Education of a Humanitarian, The Making of a Navy SEAL. Please welcome Eric Greitens to West Coast Live. How do you do? Thank you for coming in. Would, would you run a sub-three-hour marathon in the desert? Uh, in Fallujah, it was a little tough. They, they warned us before we head out, headed out on the course that there might be incoming artillery, so it was, it was, it was, it was a challenging course. <laughs> and they didn't have people along the way with little cups of water to hand out to you? Well, so we actually ran it on the base on Camp Fallujah, and they did actually have some volunteers come out who had some water for us and things like that. But. And the Purple Heart signifies you were wounded. What, what happened? Correct. So when I was in uh, serving in Iraq in 2007, I was the commander of an al-Qaeda targeting cell, and my unit was hit by a suicide truck bomb. Um, I was very fortunate in that my wounds were minor. I was taken to the Fallujah Surgical Hospital. I was treated there, and re- I was cleared for full duty 72 hours later. But a lot of the folks who were on my team were hurt a lot harder than I was that day. So when you hear that you're cleared for duty, uh, is that kind of like a mixed blessing to hear that? <laughs> no, I mean, when you're, when you're over there, you want, of course, to be back to full health so that you can actually be helpful to the guys who are, who are around you. And your thoughts go out to the people who were, you know, who were hurt much more severely than I was who ended up being sent, sent back home. Yeah. I mean, that idea of, of loyalty, of connection with your fellow soldiers is, is keen in, in your work. Absolutely. I I think that, you know, one of the things that you learn actually going through the SEAL team training, which, as you may know, has a reputation for being the hardest military training in the world, is that to make it through that training, you can only make it through if you have a heart large enough to step outside of your own pain. And it's one of the the lessons that I actually saw doing a lot of my humanitarian work as well, is that the people who are able to survive great great struggles and great tragedy in their life. They were only able to do that because they were able to step outside of their own pain and think about others. So when you're going through that SEAL team training, there were moments where I remember being on the beach and thinking, if I were alone, I would quit right now. But there's a guy to my left who needs me, there's a guy to my right, and because of that, I was able to to continue. 
Was that part of that training on the beach when you were lying on the beach, 50 degree water, you, you stay there for as long as it washes over you? Yeah, you know, the, they have you do a lot of really difficult things in SEAL Team training, and, and the water off the coast of San Diego is often in the low to mid-50s, and they make sure you get plenty of time to appreciate the water. And, and they often have you, have you lay in that water till, uh, till your body starts to, starts to get colder and colder. They ask you to do a lot of difficult things in that, in that training. One of, the, one of the differences in, in war between some of the other great wars of the, of the world is that you're often fighting in townships. You're, it's hard to tell a civilian from a combatant. Uh, children are involved. Children are used as, as weapons. Children are victims. I mean, how do you, how do you psychologically deal with that, with that kind of tension? How are you prepared for that? There's a tremendous amount of tension out there, and I think that in order to be prepared to deal with it well, you really have to adopt the mindset of what it really means to be a warrior. And what it really means to be a warrior is that you are going to use your strength to a good purpose, and you're going to use your strength to be able to protect others. You know, a lot of times people misunderstand Navy SEALs, and they think of us as, as the nation's deadliest commando force. And it's certainly true that SEALs are capable of, of great violence, but, you know, that's true of any group of 16 athletes given some rifles and some training. What actually makes SEALs special is that in a difficult situation, we can be thoughtful, we can be proportional, we can be disciplined in our use of force. I remember when I was in Ramadi, I was with special operations forces that busted through a door, and at the end of the room, there was someone they suspected to be an al-Qaeda terrorist. At the very, in the very same room, at the very same time, there was a sleeping Iraqi infant girl. And so those forces had to figure out how they're going to engage and also how they're going to protect at the same time. And so to have that real mindset of knowing that your job is, is to actually go out there and to be able to protect people is, is something that's, that's really central to what it means to be a warrior. The, uh, the history of warfare has not always been so, um, uh, doesn't, doesn't always make those kinds of distinctions. They're often, you know, sort of uh, uh, scorched earth uh, policies, you know, Sherman marching to the sea, World War I practices, World War II, Boer Wars. I mean, whatever it may be, you know, how do you deal with an enemy, sometimes you kill the mother and the, and the child, as well as the, the husband and father. Uh, and yet, after the war, how do you rebuild? You know, I actually came to my service through my humanitarian work. So I, for example, I had worked in Bosnia at a time when there was ethnic cleansing. I worked in Rwanda just after the genocide. And one of the things that I learned in doing that work was I remember sitting one time in a shelter, and there was a man who terrible things had been done to his family and the violence in Bosnia. And he said to me, he said, I don't want you to misunderstand me. He said, I appreciate the shelter that's here. I appreciate the food that's available for my family. He said, I appreciate the kindergarten where my kids can, can go and play. He said, but if you really cared about us, you'd be willing to protect us. And I had started to become an advocate for using force and strength where necessary to protect those who needed protection in situations of ethnic cleansing and genocide. But I also realized that if I was going to advocate for that. I was really saying, you know, other people should go in harm's way to do this difficult work. And I felt that if I was, if I really believed in that, I had to be willing to serve myself. And so in these situations, it is important to bring that, that concept of what it means to be both courageous and compassionate at the same time, both the heart and the fist. You've, you've worked in uh, different places in the, in the world, very different uh, places, Southeast Asia, the Horn of Africa, uh, in Iraq. Uh, what are the similarities for you in those, in those situations? 
One of the things that's very similar that I found is that I, this is really the heart and the fist, is a book about what I've learned in service on the front lines. And some of those front lines are the front lines of humanitarian work overseas in places where, you know, I worked with kids in Cambodia who lost limbs to landmines. Some of it are the front lines of combat deployments in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And now I work on the front lines here at home with wounded and disabled veterans who are trying to rebuild purpose in their lives. And what I've learned is that everyone, every single person, has a front line in their life. And your front line is your place where your hopes for your future and your hopes for the people that you love come right up against the reality that the world presents to you. And what's common across all of those different front lines is that in order to be successful there, I think that people need to live with both courage and compassion. And we sometimes separate in our minds, we think about what it means to be good versus what it means to be strong, what it means to be courageous versus what it means to be compassionate. But I've learned that in all of those struggles, we need to have both the heart and the fist. Uh, hence the title of your book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you, you, uh, you quote uh, Viktor Frankl, who wrote one of the great memoirs of surviving a concentration camp as, as about the, the way that we find meaning in life. And one of them is through work, one of them is through suffering and, and learning how to overcome, you know, really something almost uh, unbearable. And people in, in war zones go through something truly almost unbearable. Um, uh, part of your work is to be a, a protector, part of your work is an agent of that. I mean, how do, you, how do you deal with the balance? How do you help people who have returned from the war and the war zones who have to cope with that balance themselves? So one of the things that I learned doing the humanitarian work in places like Cambodia and Bosnia was that the people who actually did the best were the people who had a sense of purpose. So it was interesting to see, for example, a lot of the families in the refugee camps, the adults who had children who they had to take care of, actually did quite well in the camps because they woke up every morning and they knew that they had a mission to take care of their kids. What we've learned, and, and again, it's the same on every front line, what we've learned with wounded and disabled veterans is that the most severe injury is not if they've lost their eyesight or their hearing or a limb or they've been severely burned. The most severe injury comes if they lose their sense of purpose. If someone loses their sense of purpose, that's when we start to see suicide and domestic problems and you see the self-medication and the alcoholism. So in order to rebuild, what's essential, I think, for all of us is to think about how we help to inspire that sense of purpose again. Part of that, too, is if you're trained to go to war and to go to battle, you weren't trained necessarily for the aftermath yes. of, how, of how to return. Um, what would you like to see different in, in that kind of training system, or do you think it's the role of these philanthropic uh, organizations such as yours to do that? You know, I think it's actually a role for all of us as, as citizens that when people come home, we've done a very good job of saying thank you to them. Thank you for your service, thank you for your sacrifice, but I've learned particularly with wounded and disabled veterans that in addition to thank you, one of the other things that they have to hear is we still need you. They have to know that when they've come home, we see them not as problems but as assets and that we want them to find a way to continue to serve. So, you know, what we do at the Mission Continues is that we ask them to continue their mission of public service. We make them youth hockey coaches. We make them martial arts and character education instructors. We put them with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, with Habitat for Humanity, with Big Brothers Big Sisters. And what we do is we help them to find a way to tap into their strength that comes from their service in order to continue to serve others. And I think they're a great example because what I've learned in, in all of this work is that every human being has pain in their life. Everyone has suffering. And yet there's also this magic thing that can happen that when we have the right sense of purpose, you can actually turn that pain into real wisdom. And you can turn that suffering into strength. And that's what we try and do today. 
You uh, went into the Navy SEALs uh, from uh, a desire of protecting the weak, the, the helpless people who, who needed it. What were some of the motivations of, of your fellow soldiers? I think one of the things that, that motivated a lot of them was that they wanted to be tested. Um, you know, so we grow up in, in America where a lot of young men struggle with figuring out what it means to be a man. Um, I had a boxing coach, I was very fortunate, his name was Earl Blair. Uh, Earl had grown up in the Depression, served in the military in World War II, spent a lot of his life raising young men through boxing. And Earl always put them through these trials to teach them how to become stronger so that they could use their strength to good purpose. And what Earl said to me was once, he said, if I didn't create these trials for them, these young men create them for themselves in gang initiations and in fraternities and all of these things. And so a lot of them were attracted to the SEAL teams because they wanted a test. They wanted to pass a kind of big cultural test that on the other end of which they could come out and say, I am now ready to be of service to others. And so that was a motivation for a lot of them who came in. When the, uh did you feel that was part for you as well, a test? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I was 26 at the time, and, and certainly philosophically, my, uh, you know, my humanitarian work had brought me to the SEAL teams. But it was also the case I was 26, and I still harbored 16-year-old desires to jump out of planes and to scuba dive, and all of those things appealed to me. And I also wanted to pass what I thought was this, this great, incredible test. Yeah. And, and you've, you've jumped out of airplanes? I have, yes. <laughs> Many times? Uh, quite a few, yes, yes. And is it like a thrill, or is it uh, like, oh, God, yawn, I have to jump out of an airplane again? You know, some people really like it. I was never one of those guys who, who got into the jumping out of airplanes. And I learned when very early in the training that the whole concept of the parachute is misleading. You know, that, that the parachute, you think that it kind of brings you down softly to the ground. But actually, in our training, we spent two weeks learning how to hit the ground. And really, you're more kind of like a human lawn dart when they throw you out. The parachute kind of slows you enough that, that you can survive the crash. But so, no, it was never, never one of my favorite things. The, uh, the training uh, to be a Navy SEAL uh, is incredible toughening. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, many of your friends, many of the people who went through the training were killed. Uh, you know, that it didn't matter what kind of shape they were, you know, if they were hit by the bullet or the shrapnel or the IED. Uh, that was the end of their time. Absolutely. One of the things that you recognize is that you go through this incredible training. Um, in our class, we started with over 220 people, and by the time we graduated, we're down to 21. So it's an incredibly, incredibly difficult training. And yet, no, that, some of that, those weren't all killed in the training. No, no, no. no, no. no. This, this, is, yes, this is just going through the training. So, so the point is, is that by the time you emerge from that training, you have this really elite uh, group. And yet the fact is that some of the people who went through that training with me also lost their lives. You cannot create supermen through that training. You can just create very well-trained people uh, who have the right, not just physical skill set and tactical skill set, but also the right mental and moral skill set to be, to be effective on the battlefield. The, the question of meaning of, of purpose in life has certainly been raised in this country about the, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and our involvement there. And then we've had the WikiLeaks come out, which have also shown in one part, you know, that American diplomacy in some ways is really sensible in questioning some of these screwy leaders elsewhere in the world. Uh, but it's also shown that sometimes it's unclear what our purpose in those countries is. I mean, how does that affect your sense of, of duty or a SEAL sense of duty 
uh, in going ahead with, with something that maybe intellectually in the back of your head there's a doubt about? Well, one of the things that happens when you're actually on the ground, what ends up happening is that you really start thinking about the person who's right next to you. And, and most of your concern is focused right on, on the moment. Um, when you step back, though, I think it is important to look at what's actually happening in a, in a global sense. And you know, one of the guys who I, I quote in the book was General George Marshall. He was a commander of American forces in World War II. He was uh, later Secretary of State, uh, architect of the Marshall Plan. And what Marshall said was, he said, if you're ever going to go to war, you have to follow three lessons. He says, number one, don't go unless you absolutely have to. He said, number two, don't go, for, don't go alone. And he said, number three, don't go for long. And the point of that also, what Marshall said was, in order to be effective on the battlefield, you have to have an incredibly clear objective. And when we step back and we think about what our objectives are, I think sometimes we, you know, if, if Marshall was here, he'd, he'd take us to task. And I think that almost every war, people enter uh, with the idea, oh, this will be over fast, this will be over quickly. Uh, we'll have this uh, knocked out in no time at all, and everyone will be back home and things will be hunky-dory. And the history of war, whether it's the Trojan War that goes for 10 years, or World War I, whatever, is that they in fact go on. They release a chaos in the world for which we're not prepared, we can't predict. Yeah, and one of the things that we need, I actually talk a little bit in the book about some of the, the themes from Greek literature, right? And, and one, of those, one of those themes that the Greeks have is this idea of phronesis. And it's a, it's a concept that has no practical direct equivalent in, in English. But the idea of phronesis is it's a practical wisdom that comes about that allows you to know not just what to do in any particular situation, but also to know what's worth doing. And what the Greek insight was that in order to develop that kind of wisdom, you had to have hard experience. And I think that when you think about what it takes to actually go you know, and be effective in a war zone or to avoid a war altogether, which is, of course, the greatest victory, um, that it takes a tremendous amount of phronesis. It takes that kind of practical wisdom that's won through, uh, that's won through hard experience. And I'm hopeful that this generation of veterans who are coming back who have a lot of that practical experience can be really helpful to us as we move forward to create, uh, you know, to build, build a solid foreign policy. What's been your experience with, with working with these veterans? And we've your foundation, you want them to volunteer and to find, once again, kind of find meaning again in their life. Um, has it been uh, frustrating for some? Do some nevertheless still turn toward substance abuse, or, or is it, you know, salvage a good num number? It's an incredibly difficult problem, but what's really positive is that we have over a 90% success rate with the wounded and disabled veterans who we bring into our fellowship program. How many are you looking after now? We've got 132 veterans in our fellowship program, and we've had over 15,000 Americans who've come out and volunteered with us, at least in one-day service projects, where they work with and right alongside our wounded veterans. The, uh, the book is called The Heart and the Fist, The Education of a Humanitarian, The Making of a Navy Seal, and the foundation is called The Mission Continues. Eric Greitens, thank you very much for being on us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.